Hello, I'm Angus Scott and this is The Debrief Live. What on earth has happened to Spurs? It is a club reborn. Antonio Conte's dour reign seems millennia ago and all because a sixth-choice manager has given Spurs a licence to roam. They are the strutting cocks of the north. So today we get behind Big Angie's big plan. What is it? What has he done? And how far can it go? Ben Jacobs is here as ever, as reliable as a Tommy Fleetwood drive. <laughs> Strutting cocks of the north? Look it up, Ben. Look it up. Very important, <laughs> cocks of the north. You'll get it. And of course, Fabrizio Romano will be here in a minute to let us know if Spurs have a replacement for the irreplaceable Harry Kane lined up. All the transfer prospects on their way. But also with us is the former England goalkeeper, Paul Robinson, who had four seasons at Spurs and was part of the side that won their last piece of silverware in 1808. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, that should be 2008, but it was still... A very long time ago, Paul. A dinosaur like me, mate. Yeah, that, that shows how long ago <laughs> it was since uh, my old side won a trophy. Uh, that The need for a trophy is, is apparent and it has been for a long time. But um, more so the need for some entertaining football and for some uh, crowd-pleasing football for what we've had to endure for the last 18, 24 months. It's a good watch. It really is. Yeah, well, absolutely. Don't you think they have turned a corner? This, you know, Ange Ball is, is positive everything that Spurs wanted. And it's we, we talk about clubs having an identity and, and a certain way of playing and the Tottenham way, and it's, it's not been like that for a long time. I've got on record here in the in the UK and in, in the media and in the press, we finally got a manager that it doesn't feel like they're doing you a favour. You know, with Antonio Conte, with Jose Mourinho, it just felt they were there at Tottenham doing the club a favour. You know, they're there. All of a sudden, we've now got a manager who speaks when he needs to speak. He talks very well, holds a press conference very well. And he's united the club. He's not united just the players, the players, the fans, the hierarchy of the club. You know, there's, there's a lot of unrest about the ownership. There always has been. But who's talking about that now? Everybody's loving what they're seeing on the pitch. They're playing attacking football. They're playing on the front foot. It just really is. It, it's, a, it's a good watch. Listen, there's, there's going to be bumps in the road. I'm not going to sit here now and say they're going to sweep everybody aside. Um, but it's it's been a fantastic start. The only block for me on his copybook this far, changing the team up like he did in the League Cup. I mean, what else are Spurs realistically going to win this season? They're not going to win a Premier League title. They're not. The FA Cup is a lot more difficult to win than the League Cup. So that's the only block on the copybook so far. But honestly, school report this this time, top of the class for me. Yeah, headmaster gives it a big thumbs up. But this is extraordinary. Look, Robert, look at it. No Harry Kane at the beginning of the season. Any number of managers said, no, I'm not going to Spurs. I, I don't want that project. And suddenly, a, a, as I said, a sixth choice, potentially fifth, sixth choice. Um, Aussie, who's got a good CV, to, you know, has, has been around the world coaching, suddenly pops up in, in North London and no one expects it to go like this. I like him though, don't you, Angus? I mean, I mean you've, you've dealt with a lot yeah. of managers and interviewed a lot of managers, but he's, he quite openly says, I don't, don't make small talk. I don't talk for talking's sake. And if he's got the dressing room in, in the same way, it's it's a breath of fresh air. I mean, I think Harry Kane going lightened the expectation. I think it really did because at the start of the season, you know, you, you take 35 goals out of a team every year. You, you wonder where Spurs would have finished in, in the league over the last few seasons. But all of a sudden now the expectation's lowered. You've got a manager there who has got a team ethic. It's, it's all about the team. It's not about an individual. And it's, it's all well and good. I mean, West Ham will sit there now and talk about Declan Rice. Are they better without Declan Rice? I suppose better without Harry Kane, or do you just find another way? Is it just a different way? And 
it's frightening to think that if Harry Kane was in that team with James Madison, with Kulazewski, the way he's playing, how many he would have scored this season already? Ben, what have you noticed? I mean, you, you I think it was you who picked out at the beginning of the season that Madison was your was your favourite transfer mm -hmm. of, of the window. Not Don't biased so at all being a Leicester fan, of course, <laughs> but he's been inspiring. And I think that Robbie makes a great point. Tottenham with Harry Kane were one team with a focal point with a lot of goals in them. And in fairness, last season, nobody really stopped Harry Kane. The problem for Spurs was defensively, they were giving away two goal leads and that allowed sides to take points off them. And actually, if they had the defence and a bit more discipline and Kane's goals from last season, I think they would be title contenders. So my feeling is we can't necessarily say that Spurs are better without Kane, but they're better because there's unity. They're better because there's chemistry. There's better, I think dynamic and balance at the back. We have seen Van de Ven come in, for example, and develop a partnership with Romero, who's been excellent this season. And that's a factor in Tottenham being able to be a little bit more disciplined. And then when they do concede goals, we saw it against Arsenal. We saw it against Brentford on opening day. They find a way of bouncing back. And yes, they did that a bit under Antonio Conte, where they sort of dice with danger and fought back from 2-0 down on a few occasions. But now you just feel like Tottenham are in every single game. And then when you go further forwards, you've got Son, who I think is relishing leading the line. You've got Madison, who is pulling all of the strings. You've got Brennan Johnson, who I think will excel as we see more minutes. You've still got Kulisevsky there. And if Richarlison can start scoring, then Tottenham have got a lot of depth, a lot of goals, a lot of ability to start bossing games and I think when they get ahead in matches this season they're going to be very difficult to stop so I agree with Robbo that they're probably not Premier League contenders but they have a real opportunity here to make some headway as far as the race for Champions League football is concerned and if they do that and they can build a bit of a cushion and a lead then they stand a very realistic chance of getting back into the Champions League and then that's the sort of outfield side but Robbo I'd be remiss if I don't ask you about the goalkeeper who's the new signing that we haven't mentioned Vicario. Rea was the first option that Tottenham looked at. They didn't like the price. They moved on. They brought in Vicario, lesser known, but has a lot of attributes that are conducive to Premier League football. What have you made of him so far? Uh, listen, I've liked him. I'm not so sure they were put off by the price tag of Rea because if you look at what Arsenal have done, they've got him on loan. So, I mean, there was obviously a deal there to be done with Brentford. They accepted the fact the player was going to leave. The, the Rea uh, Ramsdale situation, that's that's probably for a, a whole new podcast. We could talk about that for hours. But Vicario has come in and he's done exceptionally well. Um, he's, he's hit the ground running, if you like. He's he's got, not, he's got experience, but not as much experience as you would expect for somebody of his age. Um, he, he's come in, he's done well. He, he commands his box. He communicates well with his centre-halves. It was interesting what you were saying there in the uh, in what you said about Romero. Romero and discipline, two words that don't often go together very well. <laughs> the biggest challenge this year. I mean, the partnership that he's got with Van der Ven has been excellent and the goalkeeper's been, you know, a, a big part of that. For me, Hugo Lloris, it, it looks like his time's done at Tottenham, doesn't it? But I think it's, I'm disappointed the way that it's it's kind of petered to an end. For somebody who's had such a career and such a, an input at a club for so long, I think he deserves more of a not more of a send off, more more of a a respectful ending, if it is to be indeed to be the end for Hugo Lloris. But I think Bakari obviously is the future. Um, it's difficult being a Premier League goalkeeper, and it's difficult doing it over a number of months and a number of seasons. 
we saw Elan Melier at Leeds do it for a season and he was outstanding. People were saying he was going to be the next Hugo Lloris. He was going to be in the French squad. Halfway through the second season, it was hard to sustain. It's longevity, it's sustainability, and that's the most difficult thing for a goalkeeper. It's it's easy to get through a certain amount of games on your own ability and adrenaline. It's doing that week in and week out, and that's the test that he's got to come. But yeah, absolutely, early early indications and early signs are he's a very good goalkeeper. Yeah, when you, what you're looking at, um, Paul, when when you're going for a, a goalkeeper, what's what's the most important thing? I mean, people say, oh, he's a great shot stopper. Gee, that's that's you know, everyone should be a great shot stopper. That's why got, <laughs> they've got a pair of gloves and they're in between the sticks. But what else are you looking for? Well, listen, Angus, the roles changed a lot since I, I kept golf. I mean, we, our job was to keep the ball out of the net. And then when it was a goal kick, you put the ball on the six-yard line, on the white line, kicked it down the field as far as you could. And now the centre-half, now you stand out of your goal and the centre-half passes the goal kick to you. Some of the stuff that goalkeepers do now, half the managers that I play for, if I even attempted a Cruyff turn inside my six-yard box, they'd have you off at half-time. So the, the roles the roles massively changed. Um, for the better, it, it, it's arguable. That's it's, it's very debatable. You look at Manchester United spending nearly £50 million on Anana. Um they're playing slower, they're playing more progressive and in possession they've slowed down a lot. Because why? Because they play through the goalkeeper. Whereas David De Gea was in goal, he conceded nine goals at Old Trafford last year, Golden Glove Award, one of the world's best keepers for a number of years, but he wasn't great with his feet. So what's more important to a manager? He wasn't great with his feet. So the Manchester United defenders, defensive midfielders, their first thought was to pass forward, was to pass through the lines. Now it's not. They've got an easy out now because the goalkeeper can play with his feet. Is he as good a shot stopper as David De Gea? No, he's not. The, the whole remit and the, the, the job description of a goalkeeper has massively changed. So I think back to your original question is what do you look for? It depends as a manager what style and what system you want to play. If you want to play out from the back, like Arsenal have made a, a big thing now with bringing David Rea in. I, did, I covered their first game when they were at Everton. The first thing they did from the kickoff was go back to David Rea with a first, first, first pass from the, from the centre spot. Didn't go anywhere else. David Rea was stood in between his two centre-halves and the first ball went to him. And if that wasn't an intent of how they're going to play and how they're going to build up, certain teams use a goalkeeper now as a quarterback. They're all set plays, they're drawing out the opposition and then they have plays, if this happens, if that happens, the goalkeeper plays wide, he plays long, he plays into the centre-halves. But half the time David Rea did that, he just rolled the five-yard five pass to Gabriel. And you, you question you know, what the manager's priorities are at times. We, we, we're kind of losing losing um, vision of what a goalkeeper's job is, is to keep the ball out of the net, first and foremost. Well, that's, that's your fundamental. That, that's why you're buying them, aren't you? You know, that, that, that's, that's your number one job. Absolutely. Um, okay, we'll hold it there for a moment, uh, Paul and Ben, because uh, let's get some news uh, from Fabrizio Romano. It would be remiss if we weren't to find out what Spurs... Um, plans are post Harry Kane and whether somebody else uh, might be coming in in his place in the January window and I caught up with Fab just a little bit earlier. Fabrizio, it's, it's been a, a stunning weekend of, of football, so much to talk about. Uh, one of the big games, obviously, uh, that we've been discussing is Spurs against Liverpool. Uh, it seems Spurs can keep on winning um, without Harry Kane. Is there any uh, future of, uh, you know, a, a new name coming in instead of Harry Kane in the future? Look, I think what they did this summer is a very clear strategy. They were not in panic when they decided to uh, sell Harry Kane to Bayern. Of course, it was a complicated decision. And Daniel Levy tried in every way, really, to keep the player at the club, to offer him 
a new deal, but it was just impossible to, to convince Eric Kane at that point. But what they decided to do together with the manager, and that's a crucial point, together with the manager, something that has always been complicated in the recent years at Tottenham because the relationship between Daniel Levy and some of the managers at Tottenham in the past was not at the same level of the relationship he has now with Andrzej Postecoglou, they decided to go with a different strategy. So if there is no proper number nine on the market available for Tottenham, the best idea was to go for a different kind of player and different kind of idea, as they did by signing Brendan Johnson. So I can tell you at the moment they are very happy with the squad they have, very happy with the impact of Brendan Johnson. Of course, he had this small injury, but in general, he's doing very well in the training sessions and they are sure that they signed an important player for present and future. And so they are not desperate to find a new number nine right now on the market. I think they will wait. They will wait for the second part, sorry, for the first part of 2024 and second part of the season to understand what's the situation on the market. So something like maybe March, April, May, when we approach the summer transfer window to see if there is some opportunity to prepare something for the summer, but at the moment it's quiet. Look, two names that 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 may be on the shopping list for, for strikers, and we know how much strikers are wanted by sides. Ivan Tony is one. And Victor Osiman the other. What's going on in the, with a with a fallout of Osiman who um has has clearly made put out a statement made up with Napoli a little bit, or Napoli has made up with with him? Yeah, it's kind of tense situation between between Ozyman and Napoli. As he clarified yesterday, it's not between Ozyman and the fans because Victor Ozyman has always had a special relationship with the fans. He will always be in the history of Napoli for what he did because winning a Serie A title in Napoli means to be an historical player forever. So uh, that's the feeling with the fans. But with the club, the situation is different. The reality is that last summer, Victor Ozyman received some approaches, especially from Saudi, with very important possibilities, including a very important chance with Alilal before they signed Mitrovic, Neymar Jr. So when they were still looking for offensive players, Ozyman was, in, was on their list, but for Napoli was a very clear no when they started to negotiate with Alilal. Despite Alilal prepared to pay more than 140-50 million euros for Napoli, that was not the case to accept the proposal. And so Victor Ozyman probably wanted different kind of situation on the market last summer or a different kind of contract. And at the moment, the agreement to extend the contract is not in place. And his contract is expiring in June 2025. So it's kind of a dangerous situation for Napoli. The feeling is that they have to reach an agreement on a new contract in the next two, three months. Otherwise, for Osimhen, it's going to be time to leave the club in 2024. And that's the most likely outcome of this story with Victor Osimhen probably leaving next year. Okay, let's move on to to Manchester United. It looks like Martinez is out for a, a bit longer, having another operation. Do they need another defender? I think it depends on the opportunities. For January, they want to wait and see uh, how long it will take for Lisandro Martinez to be back with the squad. So it's going to be crucial to see the recovery time. It could be two, three months. This is the feeling of those close to the player. But uh, in this kind of cases, it's the second injury, the same injury. And so they want to, to wait and see how it evolves. So for January, is still not decided. But in general, for uh, 2024, the idea of Manchester United is to bring in one more centre-back. Let's see if it's going to be January. Let's see if it's going to be summer. The feeling is that summer is more likely. But they want an important player uh, because already last summer they wanted to sign a player in that position. Benjamin Pavard was the priority target, but then it collapsed because of the Harry Maguire situation with West Ham. And so that was kind of domino. And so the Pavard deal collapsed. But they are still tracking centre-backs. For example, Toribo, who was on the list last summer and remains a player really appreciated by Manchester United. So, United scouts are always in attendance to keep an eye on, on Jean-Claude Toribo with Nice. 
but also Antonio Silva from Benfica is a player they really like. Complicated target because negotiating with Benfica is always difficult, but very talented centre-back. And also Tapsoba from Bayer Leverkusen. He recently extended his contract. He was in the list at Tottenham last summer, but my United are also keeping an eye on Tapsoba. And what about Calvin Phillips? What's the future for him at uh, Manchester City? Pep says, yes, if, if he plays the right way, he's got a part in Manchester City's future this season with Pep. But he needs England time and he's not getting any playing time at Manchester City. Yeah, but he wanted to stay. He really wanted to stay during the summer. He had some possibilities, some chances maybe on loan with the chance to, to also to stay in Premier League and to have the opportunity to, to play on a regular basis. But the idea of the player was... I want to stay. Uh, I want to fight for my place at Manchester City. And this remains the feeling of, of Calvin Phillips as of today. Then we have to see when we approach the January transfer window how will be the situation. But Calvin Phillips wants to fight for his place at Manchester City. He believes it's an incredible opportunity to be at City. This is why he decided to leave, to leave Leeds United one year ago and to join, uh, to join City. So at the moment, nothing has changed. But for Man City, it was a possibility to send him on loan in the summer. And it was the player to say, no, I want to stay here. So I think it's on Calvin to decide probably when it's going to be November, December, when he understands the world situation of the first part of the season. And what, what about uh, Mark Cucurea at, at Chelsea? Uh, Mauricio Pochettino says he does have a future. The falling out seems to have been settled there and he could be in action against Fulham this evening. What's the latest on that? Look, the situation of Cucurea is very particular because he received many proposals over the summer. We know what happened with Manchester United in the final two, three days of the transfer window, but also other clubs wanted Cucurella, including Real Sociedad, uh, including Leipzig, including Atletico Madrid. During the summer, June, July, many clubs asked for Cucurella and the player said no because he wanted to fight for his place at Chelsea. Then when May United arrived for Cucurella, it was a possibility to go there, but the deal collapsed because of two factors. The first one was the break close. Manchester United wanted a break close for January, included in the deal and the answer from Chelsea was no. And also because Kukureya was playing in Carabao Cup uh, in the day before deadline day and May United were not happy at all with that choice because they had no chance to play Kukureya in, uh, in Carabao Cup then. So this is why mm, the deal collapsed. But right after this story, Kukureya started to train in a fantastic way to show that he really wanted uh, to, to be an important player for Chelsea, to help the squad, to give his best for, the, for Chelsea and for Mauricio Pochettino. He has a good relationship with Pochettino. And so I think he's being very professional, trying his best to return into the starting eleven and, uh, and to have a chance at Chelsea. So that's the situation of, as of today. Then, in January, we'll see what happens, because in case they receive a proposal, the transfer opportunity for Kukureya could remain valid. But as of now, he's really fighting for his place at Chelsea and uh, he's a super professional guy, so I had no doubts. Okay, and finally, Fab, the, uh, João Felix and, and Cancelo at, um, at Barcelona. What's the future for those two? Because they, they are only there on, on loan deals at the moment. Yeah, what, what we can say is that both players really want to stay at Barcelona long term. For example, I'm told from people close to João Cancelo that he doesn't consider this season like a loan season and then back to Man City. Uh, that was the feeling at Bayern, for example. Okay, I will stay here maybe six months and then we see in the summer. But with Barcelona, it's completely different. Uh, he, see Barcelona, he sees Barcelona as the project for present and future. He wants to stay at Barcelona. Uh, and same for Joe Felix. Joe Felix was fighting in public and private to have his chance at Barcelona in a very strong way. So both players want to stay. Both players want to continue at Barcelona and are very happy with the teammates, with the manager, with the city, with everything at Barcelona. Then we have to wait and see what happens on the financial side of the story because now it's still October. I think this is something that is going to be discussed like in 
April, May, uh, so it's going to be later this, this season, but it also depends on the financial fair play. It depends on what's going to happen in terms of negotiations. For example, with Atletico Madrid, Joe Felix, before leaving Atletico to join Barcelona, he had to extend his contract. And so, you know, the negotiation with Atletico Madrid is going to be an important point. And same for Joe Cancelo and Manchester City, because City don't want to give Joe Cancelo for free or something like that. So a negotiation will be needed. Too early to discuss that, but for sure both players want to stay and Barca are delighted with uh, with Cancelo and Jean-Felix. Fab as ever, thank you very much indeed for joining us. We'll speak to you next week. Thank you. Thank you as always. See you soon. That's Fabrizio Romano. Uh, with us as ever, uh, Ben Jacobs and Paul Robinson, the former England and Spurs goalkeeper. Robo, interesting what, what Fabrizio said there, that, that they're looking at, at how this these few months go without Harry Kane. There's there's no need for a number nine to just slip in there. Yeah, it's interesting, that, isn't it? I mean, you, you look at what the impact that Kane's had over the years. You take, we said before, you take his goals out of that team and you wonder where the goals are going to have to come from. Young men's son, I think he got 23 the season before last. Last season, he wasn't prolific. Richarlison's not a 25-goal-a-season man. Then you're looking at Brennan Johnson, Kulazewski. Madison's not going to score that amount of goals. The goals have got to come from throughout the team. They're playing a different way and they adapt. Yet, young men's son's taken on the mantle of the captain this season. He's scoring the goals. But they're playing a different way and everybody's going to have to contribute. Um, the thing for the manager, in, in all honesty, is you look at the ownership of the club, you look at the investment that goes into the club, the manager, to his detriment, has proved that he can play without Harry Kane. So when he goes knocking on the chairman's door in January and says, can I have 80 million for Osserman? Can I have 50 million for a new striker? Can I have X amount of pounds? Chairman will turn around and go, well, you've not needed him so far. Why do you need a striker? <laughs> oh, that, I mean, that's harsh. It's you've true. Such a, you've done such a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that, that's that's true as well. Um, ben, look, you're you're north of the border. Um, you know, you're you're living in you're living in Edinburgh, so you're you're close to Glasgow and where Ange used to be. What what was the feeling about Ange and his style when when he was at, at Celtic? Well, I think with Ange Postecoglou, he grows on you, and you only have to listen to him to be charmed by him. And the honesty is really very refreshing. We've heard him speak about mental health. We've heard him speak about his personal past. We've heard him joke about being a Liverpool fan, but then ripping off the posters. And that resulted actually in the Fonz himself offering to send a poster if Postacoglu would sign it. And this, I think, helps build culture. But interestingly, at the same time, James Madison in an interview said that Postacoglu doesn't always get the dressing room and read it in the same way as other managers that he's worked under, like another Celtic boss, Brendan Rodgers, for example, who managed Madison very effectively at Leicester. So I think that like Ranieri at Leicester, you've kind of got a public Postacoglu and a private Postacoglu, and many Celtic people say the same thing. And privately, he delegates, which is a very effective skill, and he allows his coaching staff to have a lot of face time with players. And then when he enters the dressing room, he carries authority. And when you move to a big Premier League club, you have to be very careful. I think Graham Potter was victim of this at Chelsea, not to create factions and not to have your authority challenged. And what Postacoglu's done very well is sort of disarmed everyone with his charm. And obviously then when you get form on top of that, I think it helps create integration. And if it lasts, he's going to be very successful. Of course, as soon as there's problems, you potentially start to get certain players again 
challenging your authority. And that's why the open door policy is important. That's why the communication is very important as well. And so far, so good for Postacoglu. If we look at his time at Celtic, but also before that, we sort of see two main tactical traits, depending on what formation was utilised. One is a 4-2-3-1, which was used very successfully when Postacoglu was at Brisbane Raw and also during one full season at Melbourne Victory as well and with Australia as well. And that was about versatile fullbacks and Tim Cahill internationally was the focal point there. But Mili Yedinik was very important as well at the base of the midfield. Then at Celtic, it was a 4-3-3. And in that 4-3-3, which was also used as well at Yokohama, the fullbacks are important, but also wide wingers. And I think as Postacoglu works out, if he's going to play 4-3-3 regularly or 4-2-3-1, we'll find out whether the onus is going to be on the fullbacks or the wingers. Of course, both are important, but those slightly different formations make a bit of a difference. And I think in the 4-3-3 at Celtic, the number eights had to adapt accordingly. But compared to Antonio Conte, it's faster, it's more aggressive, it's more attack-minded. They'll see plenty of the ball. There'll be a lot of different attacking variations. We might see a second pivot in midfield. We'll see out of possession, a mid or a low block. And that high energy, that gung-ho approach on the ball at times, that width, has all been adapted to very well. And I think that's why Madison's a fit. That's why Brennan Johnson is a fit as well. So what Postacoglu's done, I think, Robbo, is not necessarily throw conventional tactics out of the window. Seemingly, he's saying to his players, just be positive. Don't have an inferiority complex. Be clinical on the ball and make sure that you play with energy for 90 minutes. And at the moment, it's working. Yeah, well, what he's saying is he's, he's trying to impose their strengths on other teams rather than the two previous managers that we've had playing five at the back, playing defensively, trying to hit teams on the counter-attack at home and trying to worry about what other teams can do to you and stop their strengths, he will play to his strengths. And the way that he will stop other teams is by them worrying about what Tottenham's strengths are. And their strengths are in the mid middle and final third of the field. And that's what they've done. They play with high energy. They play attacking football. Listen, their strength's never been the defence. But I think the sign of Van der Ven, uh, Udogi this year, has been outstanding. I think he's been a great find. And I just think the way that he plays, um, it endears him to supporters immediately simply because of some of the stuff they've had to watch for the last 18 months. If you want to get in touch with us or ask Paul Robinson a question, then do so, do so um, uh, through our uh, Twitter channels. Um, let's talk uh, Daniel Levy, um, Paul, and what you think his future role might be, what his role is now and what his future role might be, do you think? Bearing in mind there were talks early on or during the close season with the Catteries and whether there was an investment coming from there. What's your sense of what um, is is really happening there and what the future might be for Spurs? There's always been a rest, hasn't there, for a long time about the ownership and about Daniel Levy's position at the club. But there's one thing you can say is he's tried to get success for the club. You look at the managers employed, uh, Antonio Conte, Jose Mourinho, both of which you know we've, we've sat here and I've criticised, but you look at them when they're appointed. I was very excited by their appointment, thinking, you know, we've got a world-class manager, um, win-now manager. Hopefully there's, there's some kind of silverware coming to the club uh, soon. 
So for what he does, they think he always has the club's best interests at heart, but everyone has an opinion. And, you know, that people will always be critical simply because of it has been so long, like we touched on at the beginning of the show, since a dinosaur like me lifted a trophy, the lack of trophy and the lack of success, the business success, i.e. the Champions League, the, the league positions, the financial side of the club has always seemed to be more important when actually, you know, we sit there and we will talk about this fantastic stadium, the fantastic training round the infrastructure of the club, the, the business setup of the club is possibly one of the best in the world. The stadium is without a doubt. The training facilities are without a doubt. He just hasn't been able to get it right on the pitch. But when you look at it and you look at it from his point of view, you say, well, how hard has he tried? Well, he's got Mourinho. He's got Antonio Conte. He's backed both managers. There is there's, there is an argument for, for both sides here. There really is. I can understand Daniel's argument, where he's been and what he's done for the club and everything I, that he does for the club, I believe, is with the right frame of mind. You, you only have to look at the documentary to see that. But then you, you question the ownership, where where the money's coming from. We know it's not all Daniel's money. We know it's 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 owned by Joe Lewis and others. And you, you question where the ownership is and where, where the club's been run for a number of years. And that only comes into question because of the lack of success. Ben, you know about uh, behind the scenes and the, and the ownership of, the, of this club. What's your sense on uh, whether the you know and and the difficulty that Joe Lewis is facing now? Where where the club goes from here? Yeah, Lewis restructured his role on paper, if you like, via his family trust. So if there are implications regarding the case against Lewis, it doesn't impact Spurs. The Premier League can't force Lewis out of the club, but. I think when you look at Lewis's age and the wider family generally, there's a question to be asked as to whether there's an exit plan and whether the club's going to be put on the market or whether Daniel Levy is comfortable running the football club and might therefore only entertain, as Liverpool did recently, some kind of small minority investment. And as I exclusively broke in the early part of the year for CBS, Daniel Levy held exploratory minority investment talks with QSI and Nasser Al-Khalifi, QSI, the owners of PSG. And they didn't go anywhere. And the feeling from QSI's perspective was that, one, they want a Premier League club. And we know not directly via QSI, but through Sheikh Jassim, Qatar are trying. But two, they didn't feel that Levy was ready to surrender any day-to-day control and QSI were happy to take a minority stake of around 15% if things progressed. It was very early talks, but they still wanted some say, some day to day. And Daniel Levy doesn't want to surrender that at this point. So we're going to have to wait and see now if the right offer is tabled, whether or not Levy might entertain some form of sale. At the moment, my understanding is it's more likely to be strategic investment and business as usual, as far as Spurs' structure is concerned, rather than an outright sale. And as we've seen with Manchester United, the market isn't great at the moment to get the best possible price. The Glazers haven't been able to get anywhere near the six billion that they want. And as a consequence, if Daniel Levy and Joe Lewis wanted an outright sale, it wouldn't only be about giving up the club. It would be about getting the right price and the market isn't in the best place for that. So keep an eye on minority investment, strategic investment at Spurs. But Now, I think, and it may not have been the case three or four months ago, but now I think QSI are moving on to other clubs in other places rather than necessarily thinking that something is going to come of their Spurs talks, which happened back in January. Yeah. um, Look, it would be remiss of us not to talk about um, the goings on on the pitch on Saturday in which we had the most ludicrous VAR uh, decision that I think we've had in the history of VAR. Um, 
Paul, if, you, if you've been sitting alongside me in, in the studio as a, as a pundit, as we used to do, uh, we'd be pulling our hair out, wouldn't we? It, I mean, it, it's gone from bad to worse. You talking about the Luis Diaz offside by any chance? <laughs> oh, hang on. Maybe. Miles offside. Miles offside. <laughs> Definitely the goal shouldn't have stood. <laughs> but I just, I, it's frustrating, Angus, isn't it? I mean, they, we, we talked about it for years now. VAR is brought in. We all talk, talk about the words, the clear, the obvious, and taking human error out of the game. What happened to the um, semi-automated system that we had in the World Cup for offside? You know, that's, that system seemed to work pretty well, and it was, it was sharp, it was quick. The fact that we're still talking about it all these years on since it's come into the game, um, it's, it's clearly an issue. Um, it was brought in to take the human error out of the, out of the game. What we talk about VAR is, was it a foul? Wasn't it a foul? That is pe people's opinion. That's a referee's opinion who's referee in the game. And it's a referee's opinion who's watching the screen. That element will never be taken out if we're using VAR for those situations. But the offside situation, surely it's clear. In the multi-billion pound technology world that we live in now, if we can't draw lines in a straight line and give you a decision within 30 seconds, there's something clearly amiss, surely. Anything that's anywhere near offside... Whether it's given on the field or not, it should be automatically checked and it should be checked within seconds, surely. Absolutely. And and it wasn't. And and um, the fact that the uh, assistant VAR didn't pipe up makes it even worse. It's doubled down, doubling down on a, on a poor mistake. Well, um, Ben spoke to rules expert and referee Christina Uncle a little bit earlier about that farce in North London on Saturday. When the incident first happened, it was really confusing uh, and I think understandably for many because it was very clear that Diaz was on side and why that would not have been recommended down. It was very clear for anyone watching any of the videotape. So from a refereeing perspective, especially coming from a VAR perspective, there was a lot of doubt as to why this was not recommended. Um, as further information kind of came out more about, right, because a lot of the stuff that occurred would have been elementary steps to easily see. You wouldn't even really necessarily need to draw the lines, although uh, naturally Premier League has those lines. Uh, as more information has come out and there's been a little bit further explanation that, uh, you know, the VAR uh, operating team inside from the VAR, the assistant VAR, the video operating room, that they thought that the on-field decision was actually a good goal, and that's the reason why they didn't recommend it down. That kind of provided a little bit more explanation, um, although it's really uh, incredibly, I would say, unfortunate, um, and that's not something that could ever justify any Liverpool fan, uh, an apology or unjustified, unjustified scenario, but it explained a little bit more how the simplistic nature uh, of why they didn't catch Diaz is uh, onside in the first place. There's the communication during the incident itself and the confusion in the VAR room as to what the on-field decision was. And then there's the communication once they realise they've made an error. And one of the learnings in this situation is probably in the aftermath. And although the rules do technically state in the Premier League, if play resumes in these circumstances, they can't then intervene, stop play and give the goal. But there were also only a few seconds between the miscommunication and play resuming. So what did you make of how not only the decision-making was handled, but after the decision and once they realised they'd made an error, what was your reading and interpretation of how that part of this incident was handled? 
Yeah, so this isn't uh, particularly only to Premier League. This is actually IFAB laws, and it's applicable everywhere. Uh, and it's understood that once replay recommences, once the restart happens, you can no longer recommend something down unless it is for mistaken identity or is for a direct red card due to violent conduct, right? Uh, um, that is just universal IFAB policies and procedures. However, and typically within law and IFAB, you can't have a direct violation or breaking of the law. If not, the match validity is at, in jeopardy and therefore someone could contest it and play from that part. So for example, uh, a penalty kick, if it is supposed to be an indirect free kick and you end up giving a retake, that could be contested and the game could be challenged from that point and that affects the match validity. So one of the things that I, even I dug into and uh, took a look at the um, essentially an IFAB and their VAR policies and procedures. It talks specifically about how the match validity cannot be challenged due to a couple of instances of the use of VAR, right? You cannot challenge the match because VAR was not recommended down and you thought it should have. Um, the final bullet point was really interesting. It says, you know, the match validity cannot be challenged if there is an on-field recommendation that should not have been an on-field recommendation. So arguably speaking, and I was just trying to figure out, you know, how could we have, how could we have made the fix when we all know that, you know, as soon as play kicks off, you can't do anything about it. Um, taking a look at that one is saying, could the VAR, um, and this is very much outside of protocol uh, and teaching and training, could the VAR have still said, you know, uh, you know, stop the game. Um, you know, I recommend an on-field review, made a mistake. Um, I think they could have um, based on that last bullet point on match validity. And even though it is completely in violation of VAR protocol because the ball is already kicked off, um, that last bullet point under match validity for protocol may have allowed them to do that and the game still not be contestable from that point on. Just finally, let's talk about potential solutions or learnings from all of this I suppose people will focus on semi-automatic offsides but the reality of the situation is because this was a miscommunication over the on-field decision a semi-automatic offside wouldn't have really made any difference it strikes me that a more viable solution is to have a longer grace period so if players restarted within a matter of seconds maybe you've got 10 or 15 seconds after players being restarted to haul it back for a clear and obvious error pertaining to miscommunication between the on-field crew and the VAR room. What do you think the best way of avoiding this situation is? And do any obvious changes to protocol leap out to try and avoid this happening again? Well, first off, Ben, thanks for uh, one of the most reasonable solutions I've heard uh, to date, right? I've heard the extremes of (laughs) Let's completely scrap all of VAR because it's not working, which I'm like, well, let's, that's an extreme. And with all due respect, if we didn't have VAR, uh, Diaz would have still been ruled for offsides. I think people are forgetting that because <laughs> the on-field decision was offside. Um, all the way to kind of essentially the, you know, scrap VAR all the way to the extreme of like, what do we do? And I, I, I think with adding that additional time um, within the window to say even if after restart, um, if a play has been seen to be completely wrong, right, a complete break and violation of the law of the game to allow that to be part of uh, similar to direct red cards for violent conduct or mistaken identity, right? Maybe we add this kind of a catch-all phrase to give the officials the opportunity to still 
not feel like they are essentially handcuffed and not allowed to be uh, not allowed to make such a recommendation of what is a complete violation of the law of the game. Um, I think that's the most reasonable approach and probably the quickest catch all in the laws of the game. If you look through IFAB specifically when it comes to fouls, there's always that last, it's always that last little bullet point or paragraph that is what we call a catch all phrase. It's very general and loose and gives that official the ability to, 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 to act in scenarios like this that cannot be scripted for uh, that allows and gives that room in that space. Um, but I truly think um, from what we have seen throughout, and not just Premier League, but at others, you know, is you can always be better at it. Um, I was blessed in 2017. Uh, Howard Webb was actually over here in the United States, and he came over here to teach us VAR uh, and VAR protocol. And I say teach us. Uh, we were the first, you know, we were the first league in the entire world to implement it. So no one was teaching. We were all learning together, um, right? We were learning the protocol. We were working with FIFA. And it was very, very apparent to me during that time period before we implemented it in Major League Soccer and when we were all being trained on it is how much in protocol and process there needs to be. You alluded to it, the communication factor, right? It's not as simple as saying, hey, boys, I'm going to go up to the room, the monitor, and it's going to be an easy day. I'm going to be able to mentally relax. That is the most, I think VAR is the most difficult position on this referee crew now and has been since the introduction of VAR because of plays like this. You cannot get anything wrong up there because everyone says now you have access to the cameras that are needed in slow time and you don't have technically a time uh, constraint on yourself. So I actually think VR is the hardest if we were to go back to, well, if we implement that with IFAB, with adding that extra time or adding that exception, I think that's great. But it's as simple as instead of looking at the symptoms, let's look at the root of the problem. And I think that root of the problem is going back into not just Premier League officials, but, you know, even in our systems and others is going back and saying, making sure we have strong fundamental skills, similar to a player who's consistently failing at the highest levels, right? What do we do? We strip that player back down, we bring them back to another level, and we work back on their studs and the funda- on the foundations. And here, when we talk about foundations, it's also a mental foundation. I'm not sure how the VARs were trained in Premier League, but it's not as simple as just taking someone off the field and throwing them in the booth and saying, good luck. Uh, you might have been very successful on the field. It might be a very bad VAR, or you might be a very good VAR, but not be able to referee very well on the field. <laughs> it's a completely different mindset. Going back to you, it comes down to communication, protocol, and ensuring that you go pretty much go through a checklist in every scenario. Those checklists, those protocols are in place for a reason and not to be skipped so that we don't have these types of errors in the first place. And that semi-automated offside technology is truly just a blessing. Um, it's just an, it's just to speed up the play, not necessarily to get these types of decisions correct. It just speeds up the decision-making process. Do you know what, for me, I mean, she talks a lot of sense, but what I feel about this whole um, scenario, get TV people in there. We do this thing week in, week out. We understand how television works, where the lines are, what angles are like, when you when you should, should be playing it in slow-mo, when you should play it in full speed. They need help of people who understand the technology. They can interpret the rules, but we can tell them about the technology. And I think it's massively remiss that there isn't actually someone who understands that technology sitting on their ear uh, or on their shoulder, sorry, and going, right, this is how it should be done. We, look, we've all worked in TV studios we understand it with an earpiece. We have to communicate through earpieces to distant people, um, maybe not even the same country. We're talking to people in, you know, who are live from a ground somewhere else. And so we understand communicating. Um, they don't see this shows that they cannot communicate properly and are afraid of a hierarchy 
in the refereeing system that even when we see a referee walk out on a pitch on a Saturday afternoon or wherever it is, he's usually leading his two teammates out, his two colleagues out, and that he is the important one. And I think we've got it all wrong and they need a lot of help. Angus is angling for a job there. That was a good interview. Well, <laughs> Employ me. I know TV. I know what I'm doing. I can press I, the I think that's right. But, 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 Paul, you understand football and you've worked in a television studio. Do you not feel that that is, that is a way forward? Yeah, I definitely won't have you anywhere near a VAR screen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, you're absolutely right. It's, it's the technology that's... Oh, listen, there is, there's, a, there's a lot of elements to this. The human element, the human error is there. It's clear for all to see that the human error is there. But are the people that are using this technology capable of using this technology? And do they use it in the right instances at the right time? Or you know what it's like, or anybody knows what it's like, when you're under pressure to do something quickly, even those stupid word games you play on your phone, if you've got a minute to do it, that pressure is a lot different to when you've got five minutes to do it. And that pressure put on people who are not au fait with the technology is different. But then all of a sudden, if you put somebody else in the you know, the VAR booth, how many others are you going to have in there? Do we need an ex-footballer in there? Do we need a referee in there? Do we need somebody in the TV in there? And then whose decision is it? Surely this was all brought in to be just clean cut and done. The technology should be up to speed. Take the human element out of it. Was it in the box? Was it out of the box? Let the referee on the field make the decision. We're a lot easier. You know as well as I do. When you slow things down, they look awful. You know, you look at the Curtis Jones red card at the weekend. Yeah. First instinct. The referee's first instinct was probably right. And when you look at it, his foot was on top of the ball. Yes, he slipped, but you slow it down. It looks awful because his foot slipped off the ball. He's caught the player. He's gone high and he's probably upset. Absolutely. And what was the first shot that he was shown as a freeze frame on the side of the pitch? The foot. actual moment of impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than, hang on. But the referee's instinct actually on the field, the person who is there to referee, probably, yeah. in my opinion, made the right call in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Ben? Well, I think that... VAR is not necessarily the enemy per se. The technology is one aspect. The application of the technology and of the rules are ultimately what defines the success. So what we don't want is the game being slowed down and what we don't want is errors. And there's a balance clearly with VAR between rushing and acting as fast as you can and experts are a part of that or getting the right decision, which is the most important thing, but slowing down the game. And I think that, in the case of Diaz, it's such an anomaly. It may never happen again in the next 10 years where someone in VAR and someone on the field cross their wires over an on-field decision. Last season with Aston Villa and Sheffield United, was it? Last game of the season, which cost them a place in the Premier League. I mean, yeah. I'm not sure it was the right game, but it, it's the same thing. Well, I mean, you'll have errors, but I don't think we'll have anything as clear-cut as a official in the VAR room thinking that the on-field decision was goal and as a consequence, acting in one way when actually the offside flag had gone up, coupled with, and this is perhaps the anomaly, Spurs being ready to get on with the game within a matter of seconds. So I think my perspective here is two things. One, language is important because for whatever reason, because Darren England thought that a goal had been given, he drew the lines, even though we didn't see them on TV. And then he said, check complete. And it baffles me why the official VAR language is just check complete. If it was goal, no goal. And remember, every offside leading to a goal gets checked. So the language should be irrelevant. So why is it check complete? Because that's confusion. Say goal or no goal. 
And then regardless of what the on-field decision was, if goal was said, goal would have been given. The second yeah. thing to say is have a grace period. The rules under IFAB do not allow you to stop the game after it's restarted. Have a grace period of 15 or 20 seconds. And as a consequence, you don't have that pressure because if you realize you've made an error, it's a disaster. It's a massive own goal for VAR. But if you haul back that Spurs offside free kick after 15 seconds and explain the situation, then ultimately you've still got to the right decision. Spurs won't like it, but if you make it clear there's a grace period, you give everybody a little bit more time. So those would be my two suggestions. I take the point that you make, Paul. I take the point that Angus makes, but I also think that if you remove offside, a lot of the other aspects with VAR aren't just down to VAR. Handball is down to the rules being unclear. You can watch that footage a hundred times. I'm not, I'm not saying remove, remove it for offside. Line decisions is what it's important for. Line yeah. decisions, was it in, was it out? Was it offside, was it not offside? The handball, that's the personal opinion. That's the ones you take out of it and let the referee on the field do it. They actually, was it in or was it out? Was it on, was it off? We should have technology that's capable of doing that, surely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, I agree with and, you. And to be inter and to be interpreted properly. Let look. Let's wrap, wrap up here um, by saying, look, that's another three points for Spurs. <laughs> they still remain undefeated. I mean, this is not just a honeymoon period. I mean, it's it, this is this is heaven for Ange Postecoglou. But the question to you, Paul, is uh, where? How long can this last? And where will Spurs end up this season? Listen, the, the, the huge problem that he's got. If it's, it's a lovely problem to have. With success comes expectation. You asked me this question at the start of the season. What's the expectation for this year? You've lost Harry Kane and you've got a manager from Celtic after probably 10, 12 weeks of waiting to get a manager. And there's a whole rebuild going on. And you think, okay, we've got no no striker. Take 35 goals out of, the, out of the team. And we've got a manager that maybe wasn't first choice at the start of the season. You'd go, a European finish. We've got no European football this year. A, a, a trophy in the cabinet is always a name of Tottenham. Uh, that would be an unbelievable season. Uh, a, a European finish would be outstanding. Now, all of a sudden, what are we, six games in, unbeaten on the same as Arsenal and having played Arsenal and Liverpool and performed extremely well. And with that comes expectation. So realistically, what's their expectation? To challenge for the top four, get a Champions League place. An FA Cup trophy would be an absolute, you know, be a dream of a lot of Spurs fans. Top six finish would be a realistic aim. I think before the start of the season, like we said, what's your aim's five weeks ago, they'd be very, very different to what they are now because of what the manager's done. Well, it's been, it's been a phenomenal start to the season. They have been, uh, they've been tremendous. Actually, they've been a joy to watch. It's, it's almost like um, watching Spurs of old. So yeah, it has been good. Uh, that is your football debrief. Um, many thanks to our guest this week, Paul Robinson. Robbo's uh, lovely to speak to you again. Oh, I see you, you so fit, fit and well. And uh, and working so broadly across across the media, mm. um, it's good good to hear your hear your words um, wherever you've been. So uh, great to have you. Uh, many thanks also to Fabrizio Romano. Even when the window is closed, there will be plenty of news to discuss with the guru. So he will be here every week, of course, and so will Ben. Although we will make sure he changes his jumper for <laughs> next week. <laughs> I don't know. I think they're going to get worse and worse and worse because we're heading into the winter season. It might be the same yeah. for Spurs. They might get worse and worse and worse as we head into the winter season as well. But I cannot promise that the jumpers will not turn more well, festive and more outlandish between now and the end of the year. As long as they are not as bad as an Aston Villa shirt, then we should all be okay. <laughs> we don't need to see you looking like a drowned rat, Ben. Uh, if you're only listening to this... 
on uh, on Spotify or Apple, then lucky you. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back with your debrief next week.